0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And before we start today's show, I'm thrilled to announce that the Constitution Center will award the 2017 Liberty Medal to Senator John McCain on October 16th in Philadelphia. Our chair, former Vice President Joe Biden, will bestow the award to Senator McCain, his longtime friend. It will be a wonderful night of bipartisanship and recognition of public service. And for information about tickets and more, go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash Liberty Medal. Now, it's an exciting time at the Constitution Center because we are releasing a new set of essays for our interactive Constitution, which features America's leading constitutional scholars chosen by the American Constitution Society and the Federalist Society to discuss what they agree and disagree about every provision of the Constitution. And we're just going live with a series of amendments, including the 17th Amendment, the 20th Amendment, the 24th Amendment, and the 25th Amendment. Uh, They're now available on the web. They'll soon be available on the app. And on today's show, we look at and celebrate and debate the 17th Amendment. Ratified in 1913, the amendment requires the direct election of senators. Joining me to discuss the text and history of this important and surprisingly contested amendment are two legal experts who wrote about it for the interactive constitution. David sleicher is professor of law at Yale Law School, Todd Zwicky is the George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and Executive Director of the Law and Economics Center. David, Todd, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you for having us. Great to be with you, Jeff.
0: Let us jump right in in your riveting common explainer about the 17th Amendment. And remember, dear We the People listeners, every word in this common statement is agreed to by both David and Todd, so you can be completely confident of its non-partisan veracity. Uh, You note that, according to James Madison, giving state legislatures the power to choose senators provided a double advantage— both favoring a select appointment and of giving to the state governments such an agency in the formation of the federal government as much secure the authority of the former. That's Federalist 62. David, can you tell us more about what Madison and the framers had in mind when they initially chose election by state legislatures of senators?
2: So we only know a little bit about what they were thinking. There's not a huge amount of history on uh, exactly this decision, um, but Madison and several other framers suggested that having state legislative appointment would achieve these two ends. One is select appointment, or the choosing of elites for the Senate, um, as opposed to the kind of more democratic House, um, and then the second is giving a giving power to state governments in the state legis- in the in the in the U.S. Senate. Um, and uh, this double advantage uh, uh, was seen to be, to be uh, uh, described as it's obvious that this was the right choice at several points during the convention. Um, and so the goal of appointment was, again and this is a bit contested, which I can get into in a second, um, uh, but for at least for some backers, particularly Madison afterwards, um, uh, uh, suggested that the state legislative appointment of senators would both protect state government and ensure that better men were chosen.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Todd, uh, it's your common statement, too. So what would you add to David's thoughts about the original purpose of the 17th Amendment and the uh, founder's goal of promoting better representatives and also protecting federalism?
1: That's exactly right, which is what's interesting about it, considering how Quickly, the, uh, the election of the Senate became a very hotly contested issue in American history. Is that, as David said, there is very little uh, legislative or debate history on it because it was really, you know, co- um, co- almost completely uncontroversial. There was a proposal floated by James Wilson for direct election of senators. It was immediately shot down. And so they very quickly gravitated to this point. And uh, the first, obviously, the select election is sort of a quasi-House of Lords, right, sort of – they expected that uh, the people would be elevated the Senate, would be you know, substantial pe- uh, men, obviously, at the time, of, um, of business, uh, lawyers, uh, generals, you know, people like that. And then the second thing was the structural protection, which is – and the role of the states in electing the, the Senate was twofold, which was not just the direct uh, to protect federalism, but also essential to the idea of bicameralism, uh, which is to create different constituencies or bodies – between the House and the Senate uh, that would try to uh, um, frustrate or protect against what, what one of madison 's great concerns, which was the power of factions or what we would call special interests today, and so obviously. They were creating a multifaceted system where you had the presidential electors who would be elected indirectly, obviously, that's changed over time. You had judges who would be appointed uh, for life, for good behavior, the House elected directly by the people, and then the Senate elected by uh, by the Senate. And so this aspect of bicameralism of different constituencies played in together with the idea of the three branches all being selected by different means as well, uh, with the idea being, of course, to protect individual liberty and to frustrate the power of f- factions and, in particular, of what we call interest groups to capture the power of the government for their own private ends rather than for the public interest.
0: Very interesting. Okay, uh, David, so both of you have put on the table this original hope, which you describe was quite uh, ambitious, that uh, liberty, bicameralism, uh, clashing interests, and federalism would be protected by the selection of senators by state legislatures. But as you say in your common statements, things didn't turn out that way, starting roughly in the 1830s, you write, and then more dramatically after the Civil War, the vision the founders had in which state legislatures would deliberate over the selection of senators began to... Frey, uh, tell us what tell us what happened.
2: Okay. Even before um, uh, we get to the point where people start pushing on the kind of on the methods of state legislative appointment. um, The the original constitution does not include in it things you see in other constitutional structures that give the states much stronger rights. So there's no power of instruction. State legislature can't force senators to vote for one thing or another. Um, There's no power of recall. And so the power of the the state legislative appointment gave states some power, but a state legislature some power, but not as much as you see in say other systems say, like we see in the EU um, uh, today. That said, uh, by the 1830s, you really see some dissatisfaction with state legislative appointment, And the big thing that starts happening, and this is the most – of all the changes we'll talk about later, this is the big thing. It's something uh, that's become popularly known as the public canvas. And what started happening was people who wanted to be senators did not sit on their hands and then apply to the state legislature and send their resume to the state legislature. I'd make a good senator. Um, uh, with the rise of political parties, they started um, campaigning on behalf of their political, their co-partisans. Um, and the Senate races ended up t- dominating state legislative elections after a period. And the most famous example of this is the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So Lincoln and Douglas were not on the ballot. Um, when when they were both fighting to become senators in 1858 in Illinois, um, in fact, despite the fact that Douglas ends up winning the election, it seems that Lincoln probably got more votes. Um, uh, but the malapportionment of the Illinois state legislature meant that Douglas was elected. Um, but voters, uh, voters voting for state legislature in Illinois were really presented with Lincoln and Douglas and questions of kind of the future of the nation and slavery. Um, and this change happens somewhere right around that starts happening in the 1830s with kind of the rise of the Jacksonian democratic party. Um, uh, and, uh, Seriously change, whatever the bel- initial beliefs people had about how state legislative appointment would work, um, at least in a large subset of states, it, uh, it, it starts working in a very different way.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Todd, t- tell us more, if you like, about the public canvas and then take us a little further up. Uh, you both write in your statement, in the 1890s, many states started holding direct primaries for the Senate. And some states began using something known as the Oregon system. Tell us about that, and 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 take us up to the beginning of the twentieth century.
1: Sure, and and this is what I think is fascinating about uh, the the Senate and the Seventeenth Amendment generally, which is uh, the linchpin, and and I would say to some extent the 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 genius insight of Madison, at least in theory, was Madison said that in order for um for for constitutional processes to work. His line was the interest of the man must be aligned with the constitutional rights of the place. The interest of the man must be aligned with the constitutional rights of the place. And what he had in mind with that, if you put it in the context of the 17th Amendment, was uh, how they thought it would work would be that um, senators would be elected and reelected by basically acting to some extent as agents of the uh, of the state legislatures, right? And so the idea is if you want the Senate to be a, uh, a body that will protect federalism, you have to give this individual senators themselves the individual incentive. To protect federalism, so that their jobs depend on basically carrying out their their constitutional mission, and the idea is is that the self-interest in that sense will be more robust than just sending your elected representatives off to Washington, saying, "Don't forget about federalism." You know, as they, as they view you in the back in the rearview mirror, right? Um, and that, that was the idea, and I think that David's uh, historical research on this is quite uh, you know quite interesting and and um, I and often quite persuasive, uh, which is that that was the idea, but then uh, over time, as national parties arose, uh, as he talks about the Jacksonians, where Andrew Jackson basically then uh, exerted control from above, you, you end up that, – that starts uh, breaking down uh, to some extent. I think it still had important roles to play. For, for example, uh, um, you know, I, I think that it did preserve some degree of federalism uh, during, the, uh, during the 19th century. I think um, – You know uh, some of the things that we see today, uh, where you know the sort of unfunded mandate type things. um, It's hard to imagine that um, that even that would happen. Uh, But over time, I think David makes a pretty good point that this, uh, the idea that the senators, that the that the uh, interests of the man were aligned with the constitutional rights of the place, tends to uh, attenuate a little bit. Um, And so, and then at the same time, we start getting this rise of uh, democratic um, uh, politics. Uh, I think there were specific winners and losers uh, who uh, were sponsoring sort of a move towards direct election of senators. Uh, uh, For example, um, you know, one of the surprising aspects of this, for example, is that uh, urban machines uh, were – big sponsors of the 17th Amendment because of, as David mentioned, malapportioned state legislatures, but also because they had the ability to turn out their people at the polls uh, in a a very dramatic sort of way. So there were discrete winners and losers who came about uh, from this. But over time we start seeing um, movements towards popular election. First, uh, direct primaries, uh, and then essentially, uh, and then eventually, which, uh, as you mentioned, the rise of the Oregon plan where where uh candidates for office uh, for state legislature would either say yes or no on the question of whether they would support the people's choice uh, in a, you know, sort of a straw poll or a kind of election for the Senate. And over time, many states um, a- adopted that. It is significant, though, that in the end, not you know, we tend to think of constitutional amendments as being unanimously adopted. This was not, uh, and um, you know there were some states that were holdouts for various reasons. Uh, there was also an interesting uh, sort of trade-off, uh, I, I think, between the 16th Amendment allowing income tax and the 17th Amendment. Um, so there was some ordinary politics in this, but I think the uh, the rise of Sort of democratic polit- politics um, was one of the things that was uh, was driving this, along with particular interest groups uh, or or political factions that could could gain from adopting direct election.
0: Great. Well, now let's now take it up to the actual adoption of the amendment, and this is a cliffhanger because uh, by 1908, as you both write, 28 of the 45 states used direct election. The Senate initially resists direct election because they want to protect the system that elected them. But in the face of a growing number of states calling for direct election, they changed their mind and proposed the 17th Amendment. Tell us that story, David.
2: Um, I mean, so that from 1877, you start seeing uh, petition. amendments introduced in Congress, and it starts passing the House every, every two years for a substantial period of time. Um, in the Senate itself, you kind of had two uh, things that were holding it up. Um, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, one quick little law nerd aside, for a number of years, the floor leader uh, uh, for supporting uh, the, what becomes the 17th Amendment is um, uh, Joseph Mitchell who uh, if you um, remember uh, uh, Panoyer versus Neff is the central figure in Panoyer versus Neff
0: Tell our um, listeners what Panoyer versus Neff is
2: uh, Pinyer versus Neff is the, was the central now um, uh, ob- roughly somewhat obsolete uh, decision on what the constitu- what constitutes personal jurisdiction in federal courts um, it's kind of something a kind of a classic law school case and Mitchell Mitchell completely unrelatedly was supporting the 17th amendment though he's from Oregon Oregon and so that the leader of the uh, Oregon political machine, um, but the two things that held it up one, on one side were, as you note, senators and particularly uh, Elihu Root and George Hoare um, kind of standing for the traditional values of senatorial of senatorial appointment. And the second thing that held it up was a connection between, in the initial draft of the seventeenth, what became the seventeenth amendment, between. Uh, uh, senatorial direct elections, and removing from Congress the power to set election rules under the Elections Clause, um, uh, this was a very big issue for the South, um, which did not want the federal government um, inter- uh, playing a role in of uh, in, in qualifications for office, um, and uh, so the kind of amendment hung up as these two issues uh, were linked, and eventually the link was broken, and uh, Hoare and Root were defeated, and the amendment passes.
0: Great. Uh, Todd, uh, more details about how the amendment broke the logjam, and then tell us after it passed what its immediate effects were and whether it changed the kind of senators who were actually uh, elected.
1: Right. And, and as David accurately says, remember, for a for, there's two ways to amend the Constitution. One is by a constitutional convention, which we've never had. And the second way, or at least since the initial one, uh, and the second way is by two-thirds of the House and Senates voting to support a uh, um, uh, an amendment, and then ratified by three quarters of the states. And as David accurately portrays, and won't be surprising to the listeners, the House was very much in favor of direct election, and they easily reached the two-thirds threshold. But over time, the Senate um, blocked it, and so it kind of remained bottled up in the Senate for a very long time. As, and these um, sort of, and, and as it percolated through the states, uh, well, one other thing that was going on that's you know sort of an interesting backdrop to this was that. Um, for various reasons, a lot of that, there were periods at which the state legislatures actually, fa- in some states, actually failed to uh, elect a senator, uh, uh, that they basically. Um, there were vacancies in the Senate from various states, and sometimes those vacancies lasted for quite a long period of time. And one of of the things that's interesting about the eventual constitutional amendment is those vacancies were caused by the fact that Congress had passed a law that required senators to be elected by majority vote. Um, In a lot of states, especially during the turbulent periods of the least 19th century and early 20th century, when you have progressives and think, you know, sort of pro- progressive Republicans and a lot of factionalism in a lot of states, um, they actually failed to elect uh, senators. And one of the things that's ironic about the 17th Amendment is that when they did actually pass it, um, they, uh, they, they passed the recollection, but they eliminated the requirement or, or do not require that there be a majority vote. And so we quite often now have U.S. senators who are elected by a plurality or less than uh, less than 50%. Um, but it went through um, as i said more or less uh, the same time as the 16th amendment um dealing with uh, the income tax and those two together obviously were dramatic changes in the american constitutional system uh which is the uh um you know the 17th amendment sort of changed the uh, uh the power of the federal government and the 16th oh. amendment <laughs> change the uh the way in which uh, taxes were apportioned in the in the country um and um uh and the the immediate aftermath uh during the 1920s was uh, uh, sort of a a lot of legislation that had been bottled up for uh, for a very long time um involving a variety of you know uh, um interest, you know sort of special interest programs as well as regulations of interstate commerce and that sort of thing sailed through very quickly. Um, And in many ways, the way I see it is once the New Deal comes around, it's sort of a mop-up operation, uh, which is that the combination of the 16th and 17th century put in place the foundations for the growth of the the federal government in the 20th century. And then when the New Deal comes along, essentially it kind of, um, uh, you know, crystallizes or magnifies or takes to its logical conclusion the process of the growth of the federal government that the the combination of those two amendments had put in place a couple decades earlier.
0: Okay, great. Well, we've now had this wonderful history, uh, consensus history, where you've both taken us up to the passage and immediate aftermath of the 17th Amendment, and then the division start. You end your wonderful common statement by saying, By the time the 17th Amendment finally passed, it was wildly popular. In recent years, however, the 17th Amendment has come under some criticism from conservatives like Justice Antonin Scalia, columnist George Will, and a host of Republicans in Congress for removing an important power from state legislatures. In fact, I had the honor of attending one of Justice Scalia's last appearances in Philadelphia and heard him blame the 17th Amendment for the death of federalism. David Tell us what the conservative case against the 17th Amendment is and why you believe that it has things upside down.
2: So it gets one thing right and then one thing very wrong. So their argument is that removing from uh, the state legislature and giving to state voters um, the ability to choose senators removed the power that state governments used to protect themselves against the uh, federal government. And the thing it gets right, and this is very important, is that the entity inside states that makes decisions does have implications for kind of the extent of state power or how kind of any of the values of federalism. So one might imagine that all the Amendment does is give to the voters and take away from the legislature the power to choose senators. They're both the state, right? So the voters of Virginia and the legislature of, of Virginia that's picked by the voters of Virginia are both representatives of the state. You might say, well, this has no implication for federalism. What critics get right is that the choice of entity inside state government to make decisions at the federal government will have substantive implications for kind of what policy looks like, what types of people are chosen. Um, it it's not equal. What the critics get wrong is that they kind of mistake a formally protecting the power of states for kind of the values of federalism. And as I noted in um, the period leading up to the Seventeenth Amendment, state legislative elections became uh, ended up turning almost exclusively on federal issues. So again, think of Lincoln and Douglas. Um, again, you're a voter in Illinois in 1858. Um, Lincoln and Douglas are on the hustings talking about the future of the country, you're going to make your vote on this, no one's talking about whether whether the road built from Chicago to Champaign it was done efficiently or not, or whatever it is the state government was doing at the time, agriculture policy or contracts law, whatever it was. Um, the Seventeenth uh, Amendment, I think, is best understood as a protection for federalism, uh, rather than a kind of a kind of a of a, a richer federal view of federalism, and not uh, not something that's bad for it. It helps protect, although you know more things could be done, the autonomy of state politics from national politics. That state voters will consider, at least in theory, or uh, state issues when choosing state legislatures, and not nece- not the identity of a senator. Um, and if you look kind of through substantive justifications for federalism, whether it's a perver- uh, creating diversity among options or decisions being made closer to the people, almost all of them turn on uh, the efficacy of state democracy, that people in the state level are choosing state officials on the things the state is deciding. And that powers like this one, um, and kind of in a modern version of it, the power to gerrymander house districts, um, Serve to infect state politics with determinations about what you'd like to see the national government do. Um, So the 17th Amendment, I think, is best understood in these terms as a a not fully effective protection for state government against the uh, the influence of federal issues in state elections.
0: Thank you for all that, Uh, Todd. uh, David has made a provocative uh, case that far from threatening federalism. The 17th Amendment may protect it. What's your response? And, and, and why do you believe that, uh, on the contrary, the, the, the 17th Amendment is indeed a, a threat to federalism?
1: Well, what I think is interesting when you look at the history is, um, uh, to me, the founders uh, kind of thought that the direct election of the senators would be both a necessary and sufficient condition for protecting federalism. And so, What's very striking is if you look at the Constitution is that there's not otherwise, except for arguably later the Tenth Amendment, whatever, you know, some people have argued, but otherwise there's not any, anything else really built in very much into the Constitution, uh, just the Commerce Clause, but not a lot of protection for federalism, which was obviously a very important constitutional value. And again, it comes back to this idea that, um that they just didn't foresee the later historical developments that David uh, um, identifies, right, which is that they believed that it would be necessary and sufficient by basically giving U.S. senators a personal incentive to stick up for the states, um, as David also mentions, and is important, they stripped out some of the formal uh, protections for that, such as instruction, uh, telling them how to vote and um, recall if they didn 't vote the way they were uh, supposed to um, and, and so that that 's basically the idea right and um, and one of the other things that 's interesting about this is we do see this you know increased uh, wave of democratic um, politics in the United states during uh, during that period, but you, but it kind of washes up against the federal government and, and, and doesn 't have that much of a direct effect so for example, while most states elect their judges there 's never really been much of a strong movement in the United States for direct election or some sort of popular election of federal judges, for example so it's sort of limited to this one um, to this one body. Um, And if you look today, of course, there's really – you can't really see any difference between the way in which House members and Senate members act in terms of their – compliant, you know, their sort of commitment to federalism, they basically vote for whatever their electorate wants them to vote for, and they define a federal power as anything that they think is uh, useful to be a federal power, if that's uh, what will help them to be elected. So Madison was right about the central insight, uh, which is that the interests of the man are aligned with the constitutional rights of the place, which is, in this case, that if you're going to be direct elected by the people, you're going to do what the people want, sort of, you know, constitutional structure or constitutional duty, you know, by uh, is completely beside the point on that, I think those of us who think at the margin, the seventeenth amendment would still be um, useful um, see that when when I look at the history, I, I do see some uh, some checking power on the federal government. maybe it was attenuated. Um, but I don't think it was non-existent. Today I think it's basically non-existent. Uh, I think that there was a sense in which the ability of state legislatures to uh, um, uh, elect senators um, did have some sense of restraining the power of the federal government. I think it did have some sense on uh, through the bicameralism checks of restraining the power of factions and special interest on on the federal government. Can I measure that? I I can't, right? It it sort of requires an alternative um, Uh, History and alternative reality, but I think those of us who, uh, um, who, you know, sort of think about the idea of repealing the Seventeenth Amendment, move in that direction. And perhaps the the larger point is to to focus on the idea that, as I said, they they did see this as the necessary and sufficient condition that this would be the means to accomplish particular ends. And what happened over time, to some extent, is the means didn't work the way they anticipated. Um, And I think those who look at sort of the pre-17th Amendment Senate are really kind of thinking about that, right, which is, you know, that that there was an important constitutional value here um, that was lost um, when the 17th Amendment didn't, you know, or when the the pre-17th Amendment Senate didn't operate the way it would hope it would operate and then was formally uh, amended. But that doesn't eliminate the importance of uh, federalism and bicameralism as uh, constitutional values. Uh, and then the question is, what do we do about it?
0: Uh, thanks so much for that. So, Dave, on the what do we do about it question, um, it is important to emphasize the passion of conservative opposition to the 17th Amendment today, the conservative talk radio Host Mark Levin argues in his book, The Liberty Amendments, Restoring the American Republic, that providing the state governments with direct input in the national government was not only an essential check on the federal government's power, but a means by which the state could influence congressional lawmaking. He calls the amendment an object lesson in the malignancy of the progressive mindset and its destructive impact. And Senator Mike Lee, co-chair of the National Constitution Center's uh, Madisonian Commission uh, for All, Um, has, with the support of Utah lawmakers, called for a resolution calling on Congress to ratify an amendment to repeal the 17th Amendment. So tell us about those efforts, and um, if they were to pass, hypothetically, what would the world look like?
2: So... uh couple of things. Uh, uh, it is interesting how kind of fervent support for repeal is, um, uh, particularly because I think the world would change a little less than people think it might, um, that we would go back to the public campus. Um, the thing that I think Levin and Lee miss really dramatically is that The 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 framers got a lot of things wrong about how the world would work in a world of kind of mass political parties. They didn't expect that to happen. And one of the sensitivities that Todd talks about is ways in which uh, they didn't predict how the federal government would work. But I think one of the things they really failed to understand was how fragile state politics was going to be. Um, against the kind of broader issues of national politics, which uh, kind of uh, um, they assume the state legislatures are going to be these very representative bodies. Um, and it turns out that even with the 70th Amendment, state legislative elections don't work uh, very well at representing state voter opinion. Um, that uh, the correlation between congressional vote, vote for by party for con- Congress or for president and for state legislature, is upwards of 90%. People vote will vote in the state legislatures uh, whether they like Donald Trump or don't like Donald Trump, and that'll be the ma- major factor in, next, in the next state legislative elections. Um, um, but similarly, um, the, um, uh, the... Let me, let me kind of step back for a second. Um, the... What they get wrong is that the the Constitution might need to be amended in order to protect state legislatures, and that that's also an important, probably a more important federalism value than questions about uh, kind of state representation in uh, Congress. The, If you repealed the 17th Amendment, again, what I suspect you'd see is that state legislatures would go from being barely representative of state voting to being exclusively representative of federal – state voter interests about federal issues. And what state legislatures did other than vote for senator would go from being a small issue to being no issue at all in state legislative elections. Um, And other than that, not much else would change.
0: Uh, thanks for that, Todd. Do you agree that not much else would change? You gave a kind of uh, modified rapture for the repeal of the Seventeenth Amendment. Do you support the repeal of the Seventeenth Amendment? And if it were repealed, how how do you think things would change?
1: I, I, yeah, I think David, uh, you know, David's historical research is is really interesting, and he raises some really good, uh, really good points uh, about this. Um, I, I think that's the margin I think the um the, that there's a logic uh, for repeal of the seventeenth amendment but uh but i but I have to say i mean he gives me a lot of pause as to whether this is the the best way to accomplish those goals uh, uh whether um you know recognizing uh, you know concerns about federalism and, and bicameralism and that sort of thing. And maybe there's other ways, particularly of protecting federalism, that would have fewer unintended consequences than the ones that David uh, talk about. Um, and, you know, and I think one other thing that that we haven't really focused on is, there, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which the constitutional structure itself has embedded in it this particular notion of uh, of an indirectly uh, elected Senate where it would be sort of beyond politics and it would be you know, men of accomplishment, and that sort of thing. And even if you just look at something as simple as, um, the, you know, the, the impeachment process uh, where the Senate is supposed to sit as sort of a, a jury, right, uh, sort of an unbiased jury. Uh, and we saw during the, the uh, uh, impeachment of President Clinton, um, that is kind of ludicrous uh, to think of it that way at this point, right? Um, it made sense in a world in which you might think that the Senate would be kind of beyond politics, well, does that make sense uh, in a world um, where where the Senate isn't sort of sitting as sort of an unbiased uh, a trier fact? And you kind of go through the Constitution and see the ways in which these, this, these ideas, these twin uh, concepts of uh, select election – Um, and given this state's a role in the uh, selection of the government, actually are quite uh, uh, riven throughout the Constitution. So there's a lot of ways in which this sort of the breakdown of this original structure um, impacts uh, the the Constitution, Um, some more important than others, um, and hopefully the impeachment process is one of the less important ones. Uh, Hopefully we don't have to deal with that again anytime soon. Uh, But but there is ways in which... um, uh, you know, a lot of things of the Constitution are dependent on this, and um, and it's not quite clear, as, as David well says, that we can kind of put the genie back in the bottle of uh, of having a robust Senate um, elected by state legislatures that would execute the functions that the framers had in mind for it.
0: Okay, well, D- David uh, Todd has you know c- c- complimented you on suggesting that repeal might not achieve the the, the original Senate uh, goal of. Uh, protecting federalism, uh, bicameralism, and thoughtful deliberation by uh, elite representatives. But what could do that? If the, if the repeal of the 17th Amendment is not a way to achieve the founders' original goals, what reforms do you suggest might achieve those goals?
2: So I... the. The thing that I think would be most important, again, whether those goals, at, with the framers' goals are the right ones for the Constitution in this respect, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, but I do think that one thing that would help the goals of the 17th Amendment and also perhaps some of the things Tom is talking about is – are reforms that are designed to separate state politics from national politics to um, uh, these would probably be not be constitutional although some of them may run into other constitutional limits like the first amendment um, and how you think about reform, there is another question. Um, but um, you could imagine a set of laws that are designed to uh, make state politics more autonomous. And so I have a, a couple of articles that talk about this, but one simple one would be state, law, state changing state ballot access laws to make clear that the state party and the national party are distinct. if you wrote... If you instead of voting for the Republican Party and then or for a candidate for a senator and a Republican Party candidate for state legislature, it was clear that it was the uh, Connecticut Republican Party, the Connecticut Democratic Party to help distinguish in people's minds. Another one would be putting on the ballot information about the state legislature, which party was in control, which turns out most parties people don't know, um, or uh, other things that helped voters differentiate. Uh, Kind of radical proposal that would probably be unconstitutional, but that I quite like um, would be a rule that said uh, parties that are um, contest federal elections are not allowed to contest state elections. Other parties can. But the parties that contest the federal elections are not allowed to contest state elections. And this would force uh, re-party branding at the state level to uh, fit the median voter. So you have situations like, take Massachusetts. Massachusetts hasn't had a, the Republicans haven't controlled the state legislature in more than 100 years. Um, this is not a really healthy democracy if you have uncompetitive elections for... 100 years, um, and this, it, it goes for other states for different parties, um, and so things that would make state politics more autonomous from national politics would help achieve the goal of protecting state politics from national encroachment. It also, because state politics would be kind of this different, they would be differentiated some way from national politics, may... Um, uh, give state state officials in federal government some greater incentive to cater to the differences of states rather than their commonality, um, uh, which would be something along the lines of the original settlement that Madison talked about.
0: Fascinating. Uh, Todd, same question to you before closing arguments. If repeal of the 17th Amendment is not the best way to resurrect federalism, bicameralism, and thoughtful deliberation, what reforms do you favor instead?
1: Well, what, what's interesting about this discussion, uh, Jeff, is that you know, the issues we are talking about today are exactly these same issues, right? If you look at the argument over, uh, you know, the, the for, repeal of the Affordable Care Act and all these questions around Medicaid, for example, and what is the role of the federal government in giving money to the states and imposing requirements on the states and can we, you know, expanding Medicaid and dealing with expanding Medicaid and all – the money and power that flows back and forth on the federal government to the state governments, or whether it's environmental policy or you name it. I mean, these questions about federal-state relations are at the very heart of what our, our, our politics are today uh, and what our constitutional discussions are today, even going down to judges, right? And, uh, um, you know, a lot of the uh, social issues that are so conflictual are questions of, should they be decided at the federal level by the supreme court or should they be decided at the state level um and there's a lot of there's a lot of ideas uh, out there um, uh i there's none that i think are worth discussing i think all of the ideas it's just as the 17th amendment itself had both intended and unintended consequences. I think a lot of the proposals that are on the table today also have intended and unintended consequences uh, that that we need to think through. So one of the things that's striking is when you look at the debates over the 17th Amendment, um, there's no sort of recognition. There's no very little discussion of the idea that they're essentially, in some sense, killing federalism, right, that they're eliminating the uh, constitutional protection for federalism. I think that they thought at the time that the principles of federalism were so embedded Uh, And the idea that the federal government wouldn't sort of push around the state's government were so embedded in American history that it wasn't really something that we needed to be concerned about. Um, And that didn't last very long, and then it was within a couple decades that we got the New Deal that completely uh, changed that. I think a lot of the ideas that are out there now, whether it's um, uh, you know uh, different constitutional amendments that have been proposed – would have both intended or unintended consequences. I think it's at least worth having the Supreme Court think about whether more robust protection for federalism, uh, more limits on federal power, for example, might be appropriate with the Supreme Court essentially stepping in to, uh, to become the means by which these values might be preserved. Today, the Supreme Court just kind of protects the states as states, but does little to protect sort of state politics in uh, the sort of state autonomy of the people as decision makers and you know that that sort of thing that, that David was describing so I think at least and and you know I think at least one thing to think about would be whether the Supreme Court might play a bit more of a vigorous role in policing limits on the federal government uh, than they have for uh, for several decades at least
0: fascinating all right gentlemen it's time for closing arguments in this really interesting discussion uh, David you're Final thoughts on the thrilling publication of the 17th Amendment explainer on the interactive constitution. Uh, Should we celebrate the 17th Amendment or did it undermine the framer's purposes?
2: So first off, uh, thanks so much for having me. This has been really fun. Um, First, I think we should celebrate the 17th Amendment. I think it was a step forward um, uh, in uh, preserving state politics um, and making for a more rationally organized federal government. It was not a major success, um, and many more reforms could be done. I think that to close, we should uh, take a couple of things from the history of the 17th Amendment and debates over it kind of to inform our politics. And the first is about constitutional workarounds. So one of the g- interesting things about the history of the 17th Amendment is the states came up with all sorts of clever ways around the constitutional structure. This is uh, uh, something that we're going to see a lot more of as the amendment process becomes more and more impossible. You start seeing things like the, nas- uh, uh, the, the popular vote compact Act idea, which is another constitutional workaround. The 17th Amendment provides some example of the way that pressure for uh, workarounds may create, uh, may push towards actual constitutional reform. The second thing, and I think this is the biggest issue kind of as it informs the broader debates about um, federalism and uh, things the 17th Amendment can help us with, is that the, when talking about federalism, a lot of the emphasis people have is actually on Washington. They say, well, how does Congress or the Supreme Court regulate our federalism, the division of powers between the state and federal government? Um, way too little focus is put on how state governments work um, and whether they work and whether the, their organization is fulfilling the broader goals, the reasons we care about federalism. Um, I think the 17th Amendment is a, um, the, the, the best case for it is that it is one of the only parts of the Constitution, along with the Republican form of government clause, uh, much uh, barely used uh, in, at least in court, um, uh, t- that actually starts thinking about the structure of state government and whether state government is serving the ends of the people or the broader structure of the government in terms of federalism. And so uh, I think that the Going forward, whether beyond simply talking about repeal, that thinking about this amendment should force us to think about state governments, whether state governments are providing good representation, and how we might reform either the federal government or state governments, kind of internally, to in order to make them better tribunes of the people.
0: Thank you so much for that, Todd. Last word to you. On the publication of the Interactive Constitution 17th Amendment Explainer, should we celebrate the 17th Amendment or did it undermine the framers' purposes?
1: Well, thanks, Jeff. And, David, this has been a lot of fun for me, too. Um, you know, what I think the, the, the thinking about the 17th Amendment really is an object lesson in thinking about the the challenge for free people of constitutions and constitutional change, right? I think, you know, embedded in there is is is. in in the debate is, at the heart, is really this insight from Madison about uh, aligning the constitutional, the interest of the man with the constitutional rights of the place. And we we see this sort of replicated across a lot of our constitutional structure today, whether it's, you know, Congress is essentially um, acquiescing in the growth of the administrative state, because in many ways, Congress is fine with that, right? Congress likes to pass vague laws uh, that, um, but, you know, credit-claiming, blame-passing laws, where they pass laws that are Going to protect the environment, and be good for the children, and allow you know the administrative agencies to take a lot of the heat on how that's actually implemented, or uh, various other things. And so I think the idea, uh, you know, the, the relationships between the branches uh, and all these different sorts of things. So I think what we see here is the challenge of uh, of constitutional structure and constitutional. Uh, protections and constitutional change over time, constitutional amendments are a very blunt instruments um, and they 're very hard to uh, to accomplish and they 're very hard to uh, modify or tweak uh, afterwards uh, because of uh, because of all this and so um, you know what, what do we do with that? Uh, it, it, maybe it's too hard to amend the Constitution uh, the, w- the way we have it now. Uh, maybe there are, uh, this destabilizing part of the Constitution suggests that other aspects of the Constitution should adapt. Um, I think by and large, the framers had the right idea when it, uh, when they created the original Senate. I think it did play a role in protecting federalism and frustrating special interest activity um, and factional control of the federal government. I think is David, uh, David's argument is very interesting, which is he says that you know the 17th Amendment wasn't really about what was going on at the federal level. It's really about what was going on at the state level, that it was actually bad for federalism. Uh, and I think that's a very uh, interesting argument, so that if, even if it was good for the federal government, maybe it was bad for the state governments, so, which I think points up – uh, sort of, uh, you know, sort of the potential unintended consequences of um, of these things. I meant the pre-17th Amendment, of course, so it's uh, good for the federal government, but maybe bad for the states. So, um, so uh, you know, I think at the at the margin, uh, it would make a difference. I think by and large, um, it would be a positive step, but I think like all of these things, um, we need to t- take caution and explore other options.
0: Thank you so much. Todd Zwicky and David Sleicher for a sophisticated, thoughtful and educational discussion of the extremely important and surprisingly controversial 17th Amendment. David, Todd, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Today's show was engineered and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at Constitution CTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash constitutionweekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter of ours, The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity, enthusiasm, engagement and passion for lifelong education of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit ConstitutionCenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.